morning. This morning we are in Luke 9, so if you'll turn there with me. We are in verses 28 through 36. Now, about eight days after these sayings, he took with him Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered, and his clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep, but when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. And as the men were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. As he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, this is my son, my chosen one, listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. And they kept silent and told no one in those days anything of what they had seen. You may be seated. Well, this morning... Uh, we, are, we are turning our attention back to our study of Luke. If you've been with us for the last few weeks, we've been asking this question and looking at why we as a church exist and that our mission, our aim was to make much of Jesus. And my hope is that last week, as you were encouraged to pray for your one person, your one place, your one practice, uh, that you were able to sit and listen to where God was leading you and guiding you, that you could begin to live on mission for him, making much of him wherever you are. If you're hearing me say one person, one place, one practice, and you have no idea what I'm talking about, then let me encourage you to go back and listen to that message last week, uh, because we're going to continue to pray towards these things and pray for what God wants to do in and through our church for his glory and for the good of our community. But today we turn back to the Gospel of Luke. In the moment that we find ourselves in, and in this moment in particular that Peter, James, and John get to bear witness as it unfolds before them, and Peter in particular, we know that this event left him marked for the rest of his days. Something shifted on the mountain as he went up to pray with Jesus, and it wasn't just because he suddenly saw Jesus for who he truly is, but the realness the tangibility of glory, the greatness of Jesus being exposed and yet still contained in the frailness of human form. This image forever burned in his eyes and his memories in his heart. That's why Peter could look back so many years later when he was writing a letter and say, for we did not follow clearly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was born to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. On the mountain, the glory of Jesus was revealed, and God spoke from a cloud saying, this is my Son, my chosen one, listen to him. Listen to him. Our days are filled 
with so many voices that are vying for our attention. According to one market researcher, we see upwards of 4,000 to 10,000 ads a day coming at us in various forms, whether our phones, screens, TV, billboards, you name it, they are coming at us and they're promising things that they cannot fulfill, but they want our attention. So knowing that, knowing that the multiplicity of voices that are trying to capture you, how do you pay attention to what really matters? And how do we know that which matters most? And so in this passage, we see as Jesus takes Peter, James, and John with him up to a mountain to pray, we'll see Jesus talk with some unexpected guests, all the while he seems to glow in the dark, and the significance of this moment pulls on so many threads that are found throughout the human story in Scripture that point us to the voice we need to listen to above all others. And so we, we come to this moment in Luke chapter 9, verse 28. Now, we've been slowly making our way through the gospel of Luke. And for those of you who may be just joining in or maybe it's been a while and you've forgotten where we were, let me just catch you up to speed a little bit. Luke is writing a, a biographical account of the life of Jesus, and he had set out, he tells us at the very beginning of this writing, to, to write an orderly account from the eyewitnesses who were there, people who interacted with Jesus, walked with Jesus, saw Jesus. He wanted historical fact to guide him. He includes historical information so that this biography, it's rooted in real people, real places, in real time. His intended audience, he was writing to a man named Theophilus, who we believe was uh, someone of importance, a high-ranking official by the way that Luke greets him. Theophilus, his name, when you break that apart in the Greek, actually means friend of God. And Luke wants to encourage him uh, to help him be certain of the things that he has been taught and that he has heard about this Jesus. And so he's writing this account for him. Luke alone is responsible for writing almost a quarter of what we consider the New Testament writings. And that's just between the, the two volumes that he's written. Uh, he wrote Luke, what uh, we refer to as Luke, the gospel account of Jesus' life, and then Acts, the Acts of uh, God moving through the apostles in the early church. These two writings, when put together, would have made up one massive scroll, and they would have just fit on that scroll that could be unfurled and read throughout time. What we know of Luke was that he was a close companion of Paul the Apostle. Uh, he was a Gentile, meaning he was not of Jewish descent, uh, which is good news for all of us who aren't Jewish descent because it reminds us that Jesus has come for everyone to rescue and redeem all who are lost. And we discover through Paul's letters and Paul's writing that Luke was a physician. And sometimes that shows up in the detailed way in which he writes. Luke was writing, uh, most believe, some 30-ish years after the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Many, including myself, believe that date is in the early 60s A.D., and Fee and Stewart uh, remind us of this. They say Luke's story is in two major parts. One, how the good news of God's salvation for all people began. 
through the power of the Spirit, with Jesus in Galilee and in Jerusalem. That's Luke's gospel. Two, how the good news of God's salvation through Jesus was by the power of the Spirit carried by the apostles from Jerusalem to Rome. This is the the acts of the apostles that we also have in Scripture. And this is an important distinction uh, that we will continue to see throughout Luke's writing. He emphasizes throughout that Jesus is for all. Rich, poor, young, old, all tribes, nations, tongues. And what we see is him capturing uh, the life of Jesus. The spirit of God is moving. Good news has come for everyone through the person of Jesus. And so now we pick back up in our study in chapter 9, verse 28. So if you've got your Bible still out from reading, go ahead and turn there. If not, you can turn there with me or slide there if you're on your phone. Verse 28, now about eight days after these sayings, let me stop here. I promise we're not going to go this slow the entire morning, but it's important for us to capture this. Now about eight days after these sayings. Now when you're reading through scripture, it's important to ask questions of it as you're going through as to what is he referring to. Now again, it's been a few weeks since we've been in the gospel of Luke. So he says about eight days Now remember, Luke is writing his biographical account of Jesus' life, but we also have three other biographical accounts of Jesus' life, and Matthew, Mark, Luke, and and John. Matthew, Mark, and John. I always want to go Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, because you just say all four together. But we have these other accounts. In both Matthew and Mark's account, it's interesting that they note here that it it was six days after these sayings. Now some people grab hold of that, right? And we can go, well, what... Why is it contradicting itself? What's going on here? Especially Luke, who seems to be so, so uh, just precise in different moments. And what we see is actually Luke isn't being haphazard with his language. He, he leaves room for, he said, it was a, about eight days. He's not saying it was for sure eight days. It was a, about eight days. And what Luke is really trying to thread for us and point us to is more the event that is about to occur, less about the timeline, but he wants us to have the context. So he says, now about eight days after these sayings, what sayings? What's what's he talking about? What's he referring to here? Again, when you're reading through scripture, it's so important to look to the context that's in front of you. Because what we recognize is that we have been building to this moment in the gospel of Luke. What happens here in Luke chapter 9 verses 28 through 36 is confirmation of who Jesus is. But it's been building. There's been conversations that have been leading to this moment. So let me, again, let's run you through chapter 9 alone just to get us back up to speed. This is Michael Wilcox. He's given us a quick outline. It says, the 12 are sent on a missionary tour, that we see that at the very beginning of Luke chapter 9, that Jesus sends out his 12 disciples to go and do the things that he's doing. He's been training them up. He releases them. He says, now I'm sending you with authority. Go and proclaim that the good news of the kingdom is here and go throughout all the land. So he sends them out. As Jesus' disciples are going throughout Israel, as Jesus is starting to pick up some notoriety and people are following him wherever he goes, uh, King Herod, who was the Tetrarch of Galilee, starts asking questions of who is this Jesus? Because King Herod had already disposed of one prophet, uh, John the Baptist, and now he's like, but this guy's kind of doing the same things and he's creating problems for me. Who is this guy? And that question of who is Jesus is going to be an important one for us to pay attention to. And so Jesus sends out his disciples, they come back, 
And looking to kind of debrief with them and rest with them, they go out to kind of an open space, but the crowd seeing Jesus, they just can't, they can't leave him alone. So they follow him out to wherever he is. And so Jesus begins to minister to those who followed him out, but it comes to a moment in time where the disciples look at Jesus and they're like, it's getting late, everyone needs to eat, uh, there's nothing here, we should send them home. And Jesus uh, looks at them and famously says, will you feed them, right? You come up with catering for 5,000. You can do it. And they kind of look and they scramble and they come up with five loaves, two fish. And they're like, this is, this is all we have. And then Jesus just begins to feed the entirety of the crowd in front of them. And there's leftovers for everybody still because Jesus is not only meeting spiritual needs, he's meeting physical needs of the people in front of him, but he's showing them that someone greater is here. Just as God had provided manna for them in the wilderness, he is providing true bread of life in himself. And then at Caesarea Philippi, again, he's with his disciples and he begins to ask his disciples, who are people saying that I am? What are people talking about when they talk about me? And the disciples are like, well, some say you're John the Baptist. Some say you're just one of the prophets of old. And so they have that conversation. And then he says, okay, that's great that they think that, but who do you say I am? I think it's one of the most important questions that Jesus asks his disciples, and he asks all of us still this day. Who do you say that Jesus is? And in this moment, it's Peter who gives this incredible confession. He says, you are the Christ. You are the Messiah. You are the anointed one. Now, we don't walk around talking about people being the Christ or the Messiah, but, but here what Peter was saying is you are the one that Scripture has foretold would come, the king that would set all things right, who would rule over all things in perfect justice and truth. You're the one that God has been pointing us to. You are the Christ. And then immediately after that, what does Jesus say? That's right, I am. We're going to go overthrow Rome. Let's go. No. No. He's like, you're right. And now if, if you're going to follow me, you need to pick up your cross every day because I'm going to die. Like, Wait a minute. That's not what we signed up for. We thought there was going to be power and glory, and now you're talking about death and suffering. And he says, yes, come follow me. Creating a little bit of confusion among the disciples, wouldn't you say? Even for us, we hear that and we're like, I don't, I think I have enough suffering in my life. I don't need to follow you to experience that, Jesus. But he's like, no, come on, it's going to be great. Right? And so now we come to this moment where we see the transfiguration of Jesus, this revelation of who he is, and God speaks and declares who Jesus is. So jumping back to verse 28, now about eight days after these sayings, the conversation Jesus had had with his disciples and Peter had confessed Jesus as Messiah, after this conversation he took with him Peter and John and James and he went up on the mountain to pray. So Jesus heads up to a mountain with the inner three, uh, Peter, James, and John, and what's their intent? What are they going to do? They're going to pray. This theme of prayer is highlighted throughout Luke. We see that Jesus is very intentional about prayer. Jesus did not see prayer as peripheral. He saw it as priority. He's always making time and intentionally seeking to, to pray. And what Jesus sees as priority, we should see as priority. We should pattern ourselves after him and not just say, well, I'll get there when I get there. No, we need to make time and space to pray. 
That's why I just want to say, those of you who joined us on Monday night, uh, you got to experience what I thought was so beautiful as we gathered as a church in this space, and we just spent time in prayer and in worship. And I don't say this out of any uh, way of guilt or shame, but if you weren't there, you missed out. Let me just encourage you to come to those. I know sometimes we're like, we're just going to sit around and we're just going to talk out loud. This seems weird. No, but prayer is a powerful thing where we get to come and we get to plead before the God, the creator of the universe who has relationship with us and he hears our cries and he moves in our midst. So let us continue to prioritize prayer as, as people and as a church. I love that we had prayer happening in between services for our, our prodigals, for those who are far from God, just pleading on behalf of God. Uh, we were reminded in first service by Pam Harley that uh, many, who, many of you participated yesterday at Praise in the Park. And the gospel went forth, and uh, many people got to hear the good news. Let's continue to pray for those who heard that that seed would take root in their soul and that they would follow after Jesus. And so let's continue to be a people of, of prayer. So Jesus sets out with intention to pray on the mountain. Now, which, which mountain? Where does it go? Honestly, we don't know. There's some good guesses out there. A lot of people have conversations around that. But in this particular moment, uh, what Luke wants us to see is that the event is more important than the place. What we also know is that in Scripture, oftentimes, mountains are places of revelation. Where God meets his people, he speaks to people, he reveals things that were unclear. We see this in Mount Sinai, where God spoke to Moses in Exodus 19. We see this atop Mount Horeb, when God would speak to the prophet Elijah in 1 Kings 19. And so now Jesus, flanked by three of his disciples, is heading up on a high mountain to be alone with God and to hear from him. Verse 29. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered and his clothing became dazzling white. Jesus is praying and we're told that suddenly his whole countenance begins to, to shift. Something different is happening. His clothing becomes dazzling white. Again, we have other biographical accounts of Jesus' life. So what do Matthew and Mark say? Well, they say that Jesus was transfigured. Matthew 17, 2, he was transfigured before them and his face shone like the sun and his clothes became white as light. Mark 9, 2 through 3, and he was transfigured before them and his clothes became radiant, intensely white as no one on earth could bleach them. And so we hear this word transfiguration. Even for some of you, it might be the title above this section in scripture. It says transfiguration. You're like, I don't use that word. Transfiguration, what does that mean? It means a change in appearance that comes from within. It comes from within. The word here that is used in Greek, it's where our English word metamorphosis comes from, to, to change. Now, why is this so important that we're seeing a change from within? Well, there was a time where, where Moses would engage with God atop the mountain and he would experience the glory of God. And when he came down from the mountain, just being in the presence of God's glory, something shifted in his countenance. His face was shining so much that people were like, you need to put that thing away. They were afraid. But that was because the glory of God had come upon Moses. Here in this moment, the glory that we're seeing in Jesus, it's coming from within who he is. He's fully God. He's fully man. And we're starting to see the glory of who he is as it breaks through the frailty of this human frame. 
We're getting a sneak peek at the glorious Jesus that we will encounter after his resurrection. And as we encounter this radiant Jesus, who's dazzling white, light emanating from him, we have a better understanding of what the, the author of Hebrews was getting after. In Hebrews 1, 1 through C, he says, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. So there they are on the mountain, praying alongside Jesus when suddenly he begins to glow. This alone would be overwhelming, but things are only getting started in the strange sequence of circumstances. Verse 30, and behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Moses, the one whom God had used to give the law, and Elijah, the prophet of great renown, they are now talking with Jesus. And notice in this moment the way Luke words this. Jesus wasn't talking with Moses and Elijah. Moses and Elijah were talking with Jesus. He's giving prominence and priority to Jesus. And what's the subject of their conversation? Well, it says that they're speaking of Jesus' departure, which he's about to accomplish in Jerusalem. And what is this departure? Well, the Greek word here for departure is exodus, exodus, a word that means death or departure. But when we're reading the biblical story, what comes to your mind when you think of exodus, right? You think of the book that's titled Exodus, where God frees his people from the slavery of Egypt, and he rescues them, he hears their cry, and he redeems them through powerful and mighty acts. And now here, Jesus is talking with Moses, who God used to lead that exodus. See, Moses led them to freedom from the oppression of Egypt. But now, as Jesus and Moses are talking shop, and they're talking about the exodus he is going to lead, it's of much more significance. Because he's going to free all who come to him from the slavery of sin and death. He's going to defeat them once and for all, and he's knowingly going to Jerusalem, knowing what awaits him there. But knowing, in his mind, it is worth it for the rescue and the redemption of his people. Elijah, the great prophet, who had battled the false prophets of Baal and was eventually taken up in fire, he's on hand. And these three are sitting around having a conversation. The things that Moses and both Elijah had looked forward to and hoped for in the coming Messiah, they are now seeing and realizing in the person of Jesus. Now, let me just encourage you with this, whenever you're reading the Bible and something sounds familiar, like you hear the word uh, like departure and it's speaking to Exodus, and you're like, where's there another Exodus? When you, you see something exposed like this or a, a thread of thought that's exposed, my encouragement to you is pull on it. 
Just chase it down. Follow that thread and begin to connect the story. Because all of Scripture is a unified story that leads us and points us to Jesus. And here we see so many moments on this mountain colliding, pointing to all sorts of events that have led to this moment. And so here's what I want to encourage you in your Bible reading. I want to encourage you to to slow down, and I want to encourage you with two tools. Get a good, good study Bible. That can really help to bring some understanding, break some things down for you as you're going through. If you start to feel like you're getting lost, it's just got some simple explanations. Get a good study Bible. The ESV study Bible, it's a great place to start. And if you're like, I don't want to carry around a massive thing, it's great. It's online. You can just swipe it and you can find things so easily. The other thing I want to encourage you in is to get a good uh, reference Bible. Good reference Bible. The the study Bible, it's also a reference Bible, but if you just want reference Bible, I I did this last service too. Like you can look at mine, right? Because you can see that, right? Uh, There's there's verses and there's all sorts of things uh, that point to other places in the Bible. And so as you're reading along, sometimes in your Bible, you'll see that little letter that's up above something and you're like, why is that there? Because it's pointing to a reference somewhere else in Scripture. And that can be an incredibly fun way to study the Bible and see how all of these varying points connect. How the story is unified in a way that will blow your mind at times. And, and listen, I, I'm, a, I'm a simple guy. This is what I do. I just chase down the threads as I see them and I just keep tugging on them until I see the connection. And then my hope is to bring that before you and to encourage you to go and do the same because what I do as I'm reading the Bible is the same thing the Spirit of God can do in and through you every day as you're studying Scripture. He wants to speak to you. He wants you to understand the goodness that is there. So just slow down and read through it. And the parts that you don't understand... Don't kick it away because you're like, I don't understand it. Chase it down. Ask for help. Get some tools to do that. And if you need help with that, let me know because I love geeking out on that stuff. So here's your homework, okay? I'm going to give you some practical ways of kind of how this comes together. I'm going to put some passages on the screen. Here's, Here's some threads for you to pull on. Just to read through these passages this week and say, how does this connect to what we're looking at this morning? How does this fill in maybe some of the gaps? How does this give me an idea of who we're talking about and what's going on? This isn't exhaustive, but it's a good place to start for you to begin to practice pulling on the threads of Scripture. Okay, that was my aside. Just want to encourage you. Read your Bibles. They're fascinating. God's Word is fascinating. So good. So good. Verse 32. Now Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep. But when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. Now, if this does not give you hope, I don't know what will. Peter, James, and John specifically pulled aside by Jesus to go up to this mountain to pray. And what are they doing in this moment? They are asleep, right? How many of you have ever fallen asleep praying, right? You're in good company. The disciples did too, right next to Jesus. And this actually isn't the last time we're going to hear of them falling asleep in the presence of Jesus while they're supposed to be praying. But as their eyes are open... And they begin to see what's happening. It wakes them up quick, right? They're startled awake, fully aware of the glory of Jesus. But it's not just the glory of Jesus that they're seeing. There's now two unexpected visitors that are flanking Jesus. Verse 33, and as the men were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. So again, just place yourself in this story. Jesus has invited you to go up onto a mountain to pray. 
You've been following this rabbi for for a while now. You've seen him do the miraculous. You you are proclaiming you are the Messiah. You are the one I want to entrust myself to. You are the one we have been waiting for and hoping for. And as you're praying next to him all well into the night, your eyes are closed in concentration, the intensity of prayer, and suddenly sleep overtakes you. But then light begins to shine. So bright that you have to open your eyes. And if the image of Jesus alone and his glory was not staggering enough, now you notice that Jesus isn't alone, but actually he's sitting there talking to Moses and Elijah. Two prophets, men of renown, one who had died some 1,400 years earlier, and the other was taken up by God some 900 years earlier. And so you're sitting here wondering, what is going on? And a question I've always had when I've read this passage is like, how did they know it was Moses and Elijah? They'd been dead for so long. It's not like, oh, I know that beard anywhere in Moses, right? Like, I've been following you on the gram. You're great. No, they have no idea who he is. There's something that the Spirit does in the family of God that reveals this to them, that they have understanding of who Jesus is standing next to or really who is standing next to Jesus, And I love Peter's response. He's just kind of responding in this stupor of like, I just have to fill in the space because I don't know what to do in this moment. He says, Master, again, recognizing Jesus in the order of things. Master, you're over over me. Master, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. And not, again, not knowing what he said. And some people read this and they kind of like to poke fun at Peter. Like there he goes, just putting his foot in his mouth again. But let's be honest, like take this from Peter's vantage point. If you are Peter and you are experiencing something this significant, you don't ever want to come off that mountain. You want to sit in the presence of the glorified Jesus. You want to hear the stories of Moses and Elijah firsthand. You don't want to leave. So you ask if you can set up uh, temporary structures that we can stay here just a little bit longer on this mountain, that we can rest in the presence of God, keep the moment alive, keep the conversation going, the glory of what you're seeing in Jesus going just a little bit more. I mean, how many of you have experienced moments with God that feel so profound, so holy, and you're like, I wish I could stay in this forever? And you have these mountaintop experiences. This is why we talk about mountaintop experiences where we just feel so close to God. And we just go, oh, if only I could stay here forever. But Jesus knows his mission. Jesus knows what has to happen. He knows the departure, the exodus that he's about to lead. And they're not going to be able to stay there forever. And Peter in this moment is just trying to hold on. And honestly, we can't blame Peter because uh, booths, tabernacles, tents would be on his mind. If the timeline we're looking at, it would have been around the the Feast of Booths where uh, what would happen is the the Israelite people in commemorating their wanderings through the wilderness, they would build temporary structures in Jerusalem and they would remember God's faithfulness and provision that he had provided for them while they were out in the wilds of the wilderness. Again, another thread that you could pull on there too. It's, It's Sukkot the Feast of Tabernacles. And just because sometimes we don't see the connections of then and now, uh, in Israel, they just finished celebrating the Feast of Tabernacles on Friday. Then Saturday morning, they woke up 
to destruction and devastation. Planned attack knowing full well that people were just experiencing a holiday and a holy time worshiping God and then met with violence. Again, the the Bible is not just some back then document. No, it's alive and living still today. It matters to us today. And so, Peter, let's stay here. Let's just bunker down. 34, as he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. Now, as this entire scene is unfolding on this mountaintop, again, there should be some vague sense of familiarity of some biblical themes that we're seeing swirl around us and what the disciples were experiencing. But here now, we see the subtleties are dropped, and the point is being made incredibly clear. This cloud now overshadows them. A cloud, so often representing the very presence of God among his people throughout Scripture. It was the cloud that enveloped Mount Sinai. According to Exodus 24, 16, the glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai and the cloud covered it six days. And on the seventh day, he called to Moses out of the midst of the cloud. Okay, one more little Bible nerd thing right here. For six days, that cloud covered the mountain and then Moses was called up to God on the seventh day. So if we go back to Matthew and Mark's accounts of this same transfiguration that's taking place, when did they say it was? They said it was after six days. After six days, that's when they went up to the mountain to pray, and, and now a cloud is coming down. You see the connection? There's, there's no accidents in Scripture. Like it's, it's being woven together. It's pointing us to these moments that are unfolding in front of us. And what I love is, again, the disciples, as this cloud is, is overcoming and overwhelming, what's their reaction? They're like, this is so wonderful. No, they're terrified. They're terrified. They're like you and me would be. If we're like, I can't explain this. I don't know what's happening. Is God going to show up and we are going to die because, because he is so glorious and so good and we are so other? They're afraid in this moment as they entered the cloud. And then, verse 35, a voice came out of the cloud saying, this is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. Listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone, and they kept silent and told no one in those days anything of what they had seen. Now, we remember Jesus early on in Luke's account as he was in the waters of baptism, that the Spirit descended upon him, and as the Spirit descended upon him, a voice called out in Luke 3.22, it said, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. God was speaking to his son in this moment. God was declaring and reminding and assuring and confirming Jesus of who he is, that Jesus, you are the Son of God, sent to seek and save the lost, to give your life as a ransom for many. He is the beloved of the Father. But notice here, the language is different in, in how God is speaking in this moment. Luke captures it this way. It says, this is my Son. Not you are my Son. This is my Son, my chosen one. Listen to him. Who's he speaking to here? Peter, James, and John. He's like, hey, guys, Peter, remember that confession that you made? That Jesus is the Messiah. He's the Christ. He is. This is my son. This is the chosen one. Listen to him. Right? Even when it doesn't make sense. Hey, remember when he talked around picking up your cross daily? 
that he was going to his death, all of those things, listen to him. This is who you are to listen to. God is declaring in the hearing of the disciples just who Jesus is. Eight days earlier, back in Luke 9.20, Peter had declared that Jesus was the Messiah, the Christ, and here God is confirming and affirming this truth. This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. And again, in this one statement, we see three different threads that we can pull on. So let's just tug on all of them. Beginning with this, this is my son. The language of sonship we see throughout Scripture, but in particular in Psalm 2, which is known as a messianic psalm. It's proclaiming a, a, the king who was to come, who would rule over all, setting all things right. And in Psalm 2.7, it says, The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Again, what God is speaking, he's been saying for centuries. He's been pointing his people to. All of Scripture is pointing to Jesus. He says, this is my son, my chosen one. This takes us to the words of the prophet Isaiah, who spoke of a chosen one, and what would this chosen one do? Well, let's look at Isaiah 42, verses 1 through 4. Behold my servant, whom I uphold my chosen, and whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He's the anointed one. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice and make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. This is my son. This is the chosen one, the one who will bring forth justice and righteousness and who is anointed by my spirit moving in him. He is the long-awaited one. But he says, this is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. Listen to who? Moses and Elijah? No, they're gone now. They were there, now they're gone. It's Jesus, it's just Jesus. He says, listen to him. And what were Moses and Elijah doing there in the first place? Remember? They were talking with Jesus. Again, the priority and prominence of Jesus hangs at the center of this entire passage. All of the law, the Torah, represented by Moses, pointed to Jesus. All of the prophets, represented by Elijah, pointed to Jesus. The various threads of the Hebrew scriptures all being woven and pointing to Jesus in this moment. Elijah knew his place. Moses knew his place. He was not the one. He knew one was to come. He spoke of it in Deuteronomy 8.15 when he said, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. Even then, Moses was pointing to the coming Messiah that we were to listen to. The entire moment is pointing to Jesus. The entirety of Scripture is pointing to Jesus. And Jesus brings with him good news for everyone. For he alone is our hope and our salvation. And who were the disciples to listen to above all others? Jesus. And if we call ourselves disciples of Jesus, followers of Jesus, who are we to listen to above all others? Jesus. 
But the question is, who do we actually listen to? Like, who do you really listen to? Who do you turn to when things are off or when life is hard? And, and, and who are, who's the, the person that you go to that you don't just kind of hear? Right? We all have those people in our life that, that we hear, but we're not really listening. Right? Now, you can tell me everything, but I'm not going to do anything you tell me to do. Right? Who are the people that you're queuing off of, pacing off of, listening to? See, this is so important to what is happening in this passage. Because let me go back to what God is saying here. He's making it very plain, very clear. He's showing up in very dramatic fashion. There's, there's a cloud of smoke. Moses and Elijah are both there. And then he speaks from that cloud, saying, listen to him. This is my son, the chosen one. Listen to him. That word there, listen, is akuo in the Greek, the, the Hebrew equivalent to that word, shema. Shema. And to, to shema means to hear, but not just to hear, it means to obey. It means you don't just hear the syllables and words the speaker is saying. You hear, you understand, you act. The shema was a prayer that every good Jewish person would pray every day, including Jesus. Shema Israel. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. To hear the Lord is to obey the Lord. This is a theme throughout Luke's account. And here in this moment, God is saying, hear my son, listen to my son, obey my son. As you've listened to Moses and the Torah, listen to him. As you've listened to Elijah and the prophets, listen to him, for he is the living word. He is the word become flesh. But what else is Jesus? He is light in whom there is no darkness. And Peter, James, and John have just seen a full dose of the light and radiance of Jesus. So we hear this and we see this, this moment that's, that's been threaded together throughout Scripture pointing to this revelation of just who Jesus is. And the question is, where do we begin to lean into this? How does this affect us today? What does any of this have to do with us? Well, we recognize that Jesus is the beloved Son of God. That Jesus is the one who's come into this world to save us, to rescue us, to redeem us. And we are to listen to Him. We're not only to take him at his word, but we're to take those words and then put them into practice. We are to trust his voice above all other voices. So all those 4,000 to 10,000 voices that are coming your way, we're to pare down to the one first and foremost as our priority. When life is good, when life is hard, when we have joy, when we have pain, which again, we will all experience. We're to trust him to listen to him. Even in the moments where he's not removing us from the pain we so long for him to remove. But we trust that he provides what we need even in the midst of our pain, allowing us to see a purpose in our pain. And so we listen to him, trusting his words of life, trusting he gives us strength even in a land of death. So Jesus once spoke of the importance of sheep knowing their shepherd's voice. 
That once the shepherd speaks, the sheep recognize him at once. Why? Because they know him and they know his cadence. They know his tone. They, they know his inflections. They know the way he speaks. And my fear is that we do not recognize the voice of Jesus, one, because there are so many voices coming after us that it's quieting him down. We can't hear him above the noise because we're paying attention to too much of the noise. But my second fear and why we don't recognize the voice of Jesus is because I don't think we know him. I don't think we can hear him because we don't know what he sounds like. We don't recognize his voice when he is speaking. And in order for us to hear him, we need to know him. We need to be with him. And when we are with him, we need to listen. And when he speaks, we need to act. And where he leads us, we need to go. What he invites us into, we need to live in all seasons, in all times, in everything. We are to listen to him. So how do we do this? Because sometimes we overcomplicate this. Sometimes we make this so much harder than it needs to be when we can start small. We can start simple. And so let's just practice listening to him. Set aside time daily to begin with silence. That was was a perfect cue right there. Begin with silence. And then suddenly I'm like, that's a good beat though. I can feel it, right? And this is how it goes. This is life. You're trying to sit in silence and something is distracting you. And you're like, oh, but I should probably chase this down. And oh, that's, that's probably something I need to take care of, right? It's hard to sit in silence, but it's, it's something worth it. Just, Lord, would you speak? And I found the practice of just, Lord, would you, would you speak? Lord, let me hear from you. Let me rest in you. And then reading through scripture and just saying, Spirit, would you, would you show me what you want me to see in this today? Would you help me to hear what you have for me and hear today that you want me to live out? And just listen. Read slow enough that scripture can begin to read you. Sometimes we just want to get to the end. We want to check the box. I did it today. Go slow. If you don't reach the end of your chapter but God speaks to you, you did it right. If you get off on your reading plan because God interrupts you, that's okay. That's a very good thing. I would love for him to interrupt us all every day. But in order for that to happen, we have to listen to the bells that continue to ring. This is amazing. (laughs) Do you see how hard this is? Right? Like legitimately, this is life. And some of you, you don't even need the phone for bells to be ringing. You just have those bells ringing in your head, right? You got a lot of voices going on in there too. I get that. But allow God to be the first voice in your day and the last voice in your day. And some of you who are sitting here right now, you're like, I don't know how to do this. And some of you are sitting here and you're like, I don't even know why I'm here other than I just have felt something's missing in my life. And so I keep showing up because there's something fascinating about Jesus to me. There's something about him that I'm curious about. And let me tell you, if that's you and you're here, you're starting to listen to him because he's speaking to you and he wants to draw you in and he wants to have a relationship with you 
And he wants you to know of the freedom that is available to you in him, that he came to conquer sin and death once and for all. He came to lead the great exodus for all of us that we could be free in him. So let us listen to him. And when he speaks to you, when the Holy Spirit impresses a scripture on you, a word on you, uh, listen and then live it. Do what he says. It's so simple, so hard. And yet the creator of all things is inviting you into relationship with him. So let us listen to him. Do what he says and let's follow where he leads. Let's let him interrupt our day every day and see what comes of that. And so this morning as we close, I want, I want to just uh, invite the worship team to come out. And we're going to move into a time uh, like we often do where communion is available to you. And communion, just a reminder, that's an act of remembrance of Jesus' death and his resurrection. We come and we remember uh, the, the bread and the cup, his body broken, uh, his blood shed for us, that he is enough, and by his death we can have life. The penalty of our sins has been satisfied in him. But as we step into this time of worship, where I want us to begin is to simply take time to listen. Allow God to speak to you in these moments. A word, a scripture. Sometimes it helps to have a, a posture of just receiving. And maybe he wants nothing more for you than just to rest in his presence. So I'm going to pray for us, and then we're just going to silently listen, and then we'll close with a song. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the ways that you get our attention. Lord, I thank you for each person that's in this room right now. You have them here for a reason. Father, for those following along online, they are listening for a reason. You are trying to get their attention. And I pray that you would get my words out of the way and that your words would take over. That we would hear from you. Recognize our need for your voice in our life. You are the Son of God, the Chosen One. So let us listen to you. We pray this in your name. Amen. Father, would that be the declaration of our lives? That we have decided to follow you, to listen to you first and foremost in all things. That you are not an option or you're not our fallback plan. You're the entirety of our plan for you are enough. So help us to hear your voice. Help us to sit still long enough to embrace the goodness of who you are. And Lord, for those still wondering if they're hearing from you, would you make it so clear that you have come for them, that they may have life and have it to the full. Father, for those who've said yes to you already, would we never lose our wonder at your grace. So Lord, we thank you. We listen to you. We say yes to you in all things. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Well, as we uh, close this morning, uh, one of our values is that we're family, and that means we get to embarrass family. Um, he would never tell you this, but uh, today's Grayson's birthday. So, just... Just thought I'd put that out there if you felt inclined to wish him a happy birthday or anything like that. 
Uh, as we leave from here today, though, may we be reminded of the words of John 10, 27. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. May we follow him. And as we hear him, would we be with him? And when we are with him, would we listen to him? And when he speaks, may you act. And where he leads, may you go. And what he invites you into, may you live in all seasons, in all times, in everything. Let us be a people that listens to him. So go in his grace and know his peace. God bless you. We'll see you next week.